3: my morning routine i go into the kitchen and i burn my toast because that's how i like it okay my favorite bread sourdough just put in the pan second slice there and uh, toaster oven on toast then about three minutes later uh, and set off <laughs> the smoke alarms i mean that is dark 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 But not as dark as my visage, when one morning I came down to find the thing didn't work. My toaster oven was on the fritz. So what did I do? Well, I fixed it. You'll find out how later. But what didn't I do? Replace it. I rebelled against our throwaway culture. I'm Seth Shostak, and this is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode... Well, the earth doesn't need more landfill, but a lot of people are working to dispose of our disposable culture. Whether they're the global junk collectors who've created a billion dollar industry around reuse, or consumer advocates who are lobbying for your right to repair your own electronics. Now, you may not know that many companies intentionally try to make it difficult to fix their stuff. This episode, Waste Not.
2: I'm Molly Bentley let's start with waste in order to deep fry you want the oil to be really hot now this is going to generate a lot of grease so the question is what do you do with old grease well what i do i pour it into a cup here let it cool put it in the freezer and then throw it in the trash although it also works in compost
3: But let me tell you a cautionary tale, a horror genre tale, about what happens to those who toss cooking waste down the drain. Unbeknownst to the residents of Sidmouth, a coastal town in England, there was something hideous lurking beneath their feet. It was silently growing thanks to the waste fed into it from drains and toilets, a foul and glistening mass of gunk accumulating in the sewer. Sure, it was gross, but it wasn't the way it looked that sent city workers and scientists reeling.
4: The smell is absolutely awful. It's very, very organic. And when we took the samples back to our laboratory, you've never seen a laboratory empty so quickly as when we opened those buckets.
3: The buckets held samples of the town's first fatberg.
4: Berg means mountain, and a fatberg is literally a mountain of fat that accumulates in a sewer and eventually blocks the sewer so that operatives from the water company have to go down and clean it away. I'm Julian Siddle, I'm a radio producer with the BBC.
2: A fabric has been discovered in the sewers of Sidmouth, England Julian, as a resident of the UK, what is your reaction to this?
5: How bizarre. I mean, Sidmouth is not exactly a big place. It's kind of a small town, you know, a kind of place where people go on holiday. I imagine that they have a kind of sewerage system, which is, you know, probably at least 100 years old and probably discharges into the sea in some way, you know. But um, I mean, I'd heard of these things before. The one fan in London produced um, a huge social media hit. It was filmed on the television. And I mean, this thing was enormous. You know, imagine at least the height of a couple of people, if you imagine one person standing on top. Of an, uh, on the shoulders of another one down in some huge kind of Victorian sewer, you know, from like a, a century ago or more. And they, they kind of broke it open and there were, you know, all these horrible things in it, including loads of worms. Uh, disgusting.
2: Fatberg worms came out?
5: Yes, they did. I expect it was delicious.
2: I mean, the fatberg was delicious for the worms. Yes, exactly. Lovely Sidmyth was the newest member of the Fatberg Club, joined veteran members New York and London, whose enormous masses of sewer gunk first demonstrated that what is out of sight is not out of sight for long.
4: I'm uh, Professor John Love, and I'm a synthetic biologist at the University of Exeter in England. This Fatberg actually measured something like 30 meters long. That's about 90 feet and they needed about 1,000 trucks to get rid of it. It only took five years for that amount of fat to accumulate in the sewer.
3: But it requires more than just solidified fat to create something that was, well, bigger than a blue whale, as Dr. Love's team discovered when they conducted a Fatberg autopsy.
4: The actual Fatberg, though the accretion of fat, is helped by the fact that in the Fatberg you get a lot of things like wet wipes, and things like that, that the fat sticks to and therefore it doesn't actually flow properly to the wastewater treatment plant. And you get a positive feedback, a runaway accretion, if you like, of fat and wet wipes, things that should not be in the sewer that are nonetheless thrown into the sewer by people. And then that itself also stops things like sand and grit from normally vacating the the sewer as it normally would and eventually just blocks the entire pipe, causing a massive tailback of sewerage up into the town. And at that point, obviously, the water company has to get involved to clean this up. Now, how do you get this
3: stuff out of this sewer? I mean, when these operatives go in, Mm -hmm. presumably they're, they're wearing maybe something like scuba diving gear?
4: The environment is terrible. It's like being in the worst Dungeons and Dragons episode you could ever think. It's a tiny, narrow tube full of fat. There is no oxygen. The operatives have to wear protective clothing. They also have to wear wetsuits and hazmat suits on top of each other so that they don't get contaminated by anything that might be in the fatberg. They're also having to carry their own oxygen supply because there is absolutely no oxygen down there in that sewer. And they've got lances where they have uh, pressure water and they will basically just power pressure water the the fatberg to smithereens. Then they go in with big suction hoses and they suck up all that slurry. And then they carry on up the fatberg uh, until it's eventually all cleared. We were very, very interested also to discover whether or not this fatberg would be a reservoir for human pathogens like bacteria or something like that. So we investigated those using sequencing. So we took a sample of fat We extracted the DNA in that fat, and we found actually the DNA from the bacteria that were contained in the fat was no different from the bacteria that you would find in a normal sewer. So it did not seem to pose an enhanced threat to health.
3: Just out of curiosity Mm -hmm. there, John, what what is the most bizarre thing you've ever pulled out of a fatberg. I've got to say, years and years ago, I, um, one of my college roommates maintained that there were alligators in the sewers of New York. Right. It, now, this is apparently a very, very common story. Uh, but the question was, is it true? And at some point, I called up the uh, New York City sewer department. I, mm-hmm. And I said, you ever find any alligators down there? And he said, No. He no. said however we did find a dead horse and we found uh-huh. plenty of shopping carts right. and I'm thinking how do either of those get into the sewer yeah. so you're not finding big stuff
4: No no we are we the the most interesting thing we found was a set of false teeth but mostly <laughs> everything else that we did find were sanitary products and wet wipes
3: No you know people have been throwing stuff away mm-hmm. and in particular into the into the toilet or the sink or whatever i mean they've been doing that ever since we've had indoor plumbing yes right and so uh, why is it that fatbergs are a contemporary phenomenon or is it just that you know, they, one of them finally got big enough, or is it the crooked passages of
4: Victorian era sewage, uh, sewers? <laughs> well, what, why, why now? Well, you're you're kind of on the money there with the Victorian sewer idea. These sewers are actually hundreds of years old, and they were not built to essentially take away the waste for such a growing population. The southwest of England is an area of population growth, so the sewers are actually inadequate for that. But also, when these were designed people were not throwing plastic based wastes down the toilet but the plastics that we find in wet wipes and obviously in the plastic liners of um, say, sanitary products or incontinence pads we found a lot of those actually which might be because of the age of the population living in that area but the thing is that these big plastic sheets just do not biodegrade and will eventually pollute the environment anyway so it's not something that you really should be doing You alluded earlier to the fat itself, and we analyzed that fat and found that it was mainly beef or mutton tallow, which is consistent with uh, Sunday roasts, if you like, in the UK. So people were just basically, you know, grilling their food and then putting the residual fat down the sink. And you don't need very much for it to accumulate because it forms little globules as it cools and then eventually it's quite sticky as well and so it will stick to rough parts of the brickwork in the sewer, a wet wipe will come along, stick to the fat then you'll get that positive feedback loop of accretion and essentially what a fatberg is, it's a fascinating ecosystem if you like of a composite material so fibers embedded in a matrix and this time the matrix is fat itself But uh, we were able to identify the source of the fat as coming from, well, basically people's kitchens. And we were able to identify the solid parts of the fat that were coming from people's toilets. And they started a campaign now to educate people to try rather than throwing fat down the sink, the thing to do is to basically either put it in the garden if you have one, where it will degrade very, very quickly and nourish your soil or you just wipe it and put it in the bin. And I think that's the idea that they're trying to promote here.
3: But you did refer to this as an ecosystem. Yeah. And of course, that sounds like there's something alive down there. But on the other hand, you said there's absolutely no oxygen. Yes. So uh, are these uh, microbes that live you know, on something other than oxygen? Are they methanogens or yes, something? Yes, they other?
4: are. I so see. that's exactly what they are. They are methanogens. They're metabolizing extremely slowly, though. That's why the fat doesn't degrade very quickly. And when the water company took the fat away, the slurry that I was mentioning about earlier, they took that to a bioenergy plant and they basically made methane from that fat.
3: So it could power my car.
4: It could do, yeah, if your car runs on methane.
3: Well, well, it might in the future. <laughs> yes. I the idea of Fatbird powered, I mean, I can see that as a bumper sticker. <laughs>
4: <laughs> why not?
3: Finally, then, John, let me ask you, I, I presume, I mean, these these fatbergs we've been talking about are mm-hmm. there in the UK, but of course the UK is uh, no fatter than uh, other <laughs> places, and uh, particularly <laughs> undoubtedly not as fat as America. So I presume there are fat fatbergs lurking below cities here as well, right?
4: Yeah, I would guess so. I don't know for sure. It might be that the sewers in America being much more recent are a lot larger, and therefore maybe more able to take away, you know, maybe the flow through the, the sewer is faster. But uh, I would guess that somewhere there are fat birds lurking, yeah.
3: Maybe I have to coat all the inner walls of the sewers with Teflon. Or something. <laughs> John Love, I want to thank you so very much for being with us.
4: Well, thank you, it was a real pleasure.
2: John Love is a synthetic biologist at the University of Exeter in England.
3: Well, clearly, you don't think much about this. When you pour that grease down the drain, as I used to do, Uh, I try not to do it anymore, actually. Did you really? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Well, you know, it's just a little bit of grease. Mm -hmm. Come on. You know, it's grease. It'll just slide right through.
2: (laughs) That's right. Well, now we know a little bit of grease becomes a whole lot of grease. Yeah. Even if you could toss it into the sewers, why do that if you could turn that grease into fuel, as he suggested? There may be Many creative things that you can do with grease other than dispose of it.
3: Well, it's true, although for households it's probably not so practical. But restaurants certainly have been doing that.
2: Well, as we fill our sewers with fat, our oceans with plastic, and our landfills with old laptops, people are thinking about new ways to use our resources and our goods. Coming up, stories from the global secondhand trade.
6: China is the world's largest manufacturer of everything. So as a result, it's going to be the largest buyer of raw materials, and that's what recycling is.
3: You might want to give your old jeans their own passport before you toss them out anyway, because after you say goodbye, they may embark on a trip around the world. It's Waste Not on Big Picture Science.
2: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast,
6: lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help.
5: Hey, BiPiSci listeners, senior producer Gary Niederhoff here. For the next couple of months, we'll be conducting a listener survey to help us get to know you, your interests, and what you think of the show. Please help us out by taking our short questionnaire at surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave. It only takes a few minutes, and your feedback will help us improve big picture science and hopefully expand our audience. There's even a place at the end to tell us anything you want, like, I love the puns, or enough with the puns, or Gary should be in the show more. As an added incentive, you'll be entered to win a $500 Amazon gift card. Again, that's surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave, or click on the link in our episode notes.
3: Of course, it's not just grease and wet wipes that we toss without a thought. We live in a disposable culture. So some trash goes to recycling centers, compost sites, even waste to energy plants. But the majority of waste in the U.S. goes to the dump. And wherever it goes, it's a lot. For example, the largest city in the U.S. generates more than 14 million tons of trash every year.
2: You don't get to be a city of 8 million people without producing a little waste. And here we have a whole line of garbage bags. Uh, I suppose every day is garbage pickup here in New York City. Wait, what is this? It's the fold-out part of a a bed from a couch. Okay, that's thrown in there. I don't know if that can be recycled. Thrown on top of these garbage bags here. And let's count. uh, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, 20. Okay, there's about 30 garbage bags right there somebody already going through the garbage pulling out all the bottles before the recycling truck comes and you go around the corner here and what is this two chairs one is an office chair that's covered uh one is a wooden chair oh my gosh a a a metal chair uh, that has a kind of mesh backing this is really a moment of charity if anyone would step in an old table a lampshade Buckets of who knows what and two pieces of luggage thrown in an enormous pile here. Glass table, two. Ironically, had author Adam Minter's great-grandfather come to New York, as many immigrants did in his time, he and his great-grandson might never have gotten into the junk trade.
6: My great-grandfather, when he came to the United States, he wanted to be in vaudeville, but he made the mistake of getting on a boat to Galveston, Texas. So when he got there, no education, no skills, didn't know anybody so he did what you do when you don't have any education and you need to make some money. He started picking up rags from the streets of Galveston, Texas.
2: That slowly became his family's recycling business that moved up to Minneapolis. Journalist Adam Minter is the author of Junkyard Planet and recently Secondhand: travels in the new global garage sale. And
6: in a sense, what I've done for the last few decades is basically trace people like my great-grandfather Only i have gone to Ghana and I've gone to Tokyo and I've gone to China and I spent years living in China meeting people who do these kinds of activities and oftentimes building them up into multi-billion dollar businesses.
3: We're talking in this episode, well, we're talking trash and specifically about alternatives to ditching it in a landfill. Now, when you recycle, yeah, you feel good, you feel virtuous. But recycling is more than just about ecology, it's also about economy, it has real economic benefits. We're going to find out in a moment why China is keen to get its hands on used Christmas lights. And speaking of China, while some of the trash that Molly saw on the streets of the Big Apple will be sorted and resold as raw material domestically, much of the rest that is recycle worthy will be exported to India or China. Adam Minter says that his research indicates that the junk biz is the second biggest employer on the planet after agriculture.
6: All you need to do is go to an emerging market economy. Ideally, you go to Africa and you walk down the streets of, say, a place like Accra, Ghana or Nairobi, Kenya, and well over half of the stuff selling in stores is going to be secondhand. It's what we'd consider junk. But the retail economy, especially on the African continent, is primarily a secondhand economy. And we don't see that because it's oftentimes the stuff that we in developed economies throw out, whether it be Japan, the United States, Canada, or somewhere in Europe. So that's the scale of it. Think of an entire continent where most of their stuff is secondhand from
3: somewhere else. Now, you mentioned that your uh, great-grandfather was a a, a rag picker or whatever, right, picking up rags. Now, I don't know if there's a—I don't have a separate recycle bin for rags anymore, Mm -hmm. but uh, I I assume—I mean— are these organizations that do this recycling, I, I assume they're specialized. They don't just take everything that's, uh, that we throw out. They take, well, maybe the furniture or, or they take some other, you know, electronics or something mm-hmm. like that,
6: right? It's a very specialized industry. Let's talk about rags. I mean, it's, it's a great example. You know, we don't see the rag picker anymore. But roughly one-third of the used clothes that are generated every year in the United States are turned into rags. Literally cut up in rag-making factories, both in the United States and abroad, and those rags are used by everyone, and from everything, from hotels to painters to oil and gas companies to wipe down their pipelines if there's leaks. It's an extraordinary industry, and it's kind of hidden. We don't think of that as waste, but it's an extraordinarily important part of our economy.
3: You know, when I think of uh, recycling waste, I think of you know big ships uh, with containers filled with something, mm-hmm. all headed for China. Um, Why does so much trash seem to go to China? Well,
6: you know, what I always tell people is when you think about recycling, um, recycling doesn't exist without manufacturing. If somebody doesn't want to make something out of that recycled can, you know, you think of it as a recycled can when you put it in a bin. But if nobody wants to buy it and use it to make it into something else, it doesn't get used. China is the world's largest manufacturer of everything. So as a result, it's going to be the largest buyer of raw materials. And that's what recycling is. Whether it's newspaper, cardboard, plastic bottles, aluminum, automobiles, whatever it is, they are going to be the world's leading buyer. And so if you want to understand where recycling goes, you just have to follow the manufacturing.
3: What are the big items? I mean, is it electronics? Is it the rags? What what, what are the major players in the recycling biz? Well, by volume, by weight, the
6: biggest commodity, if you will, is steel. And the biggest source of steel, the most recycled product in the world is the American automobile. You know, we don't think of putting automobiles in a recycling bin because we don't, but they are recycled in specialized factories and that steel gets recycled into new steel. So in the United States, roughly half the steel that's used in new products comes from secondary sources and means from recycling. So that's by volume, the really big one. Um, paper and cardboard is also huge. And there's sort of a cycle. A recycler in California California can send their recycling and their cardboard to southern China where that cardboard could be made into a new box for Nike shoes, or they can send it to Vietnam, because Vietnam makes a lot of shoes now. And the cardboard from California, which might have come from Nike shoes, gets recycled into a new Nike shoe box and sent back to California. Somebody buys that box and those shoes, puts it in the recycling bin, and it goes back to Vietnam or China and made into a cardboard box for Nike shoes again. You also
3: talk about recycling Christmas tree lights. I mean, Christmas tree lights. I'm I'm trying to wonder why people throw away Christmas tree lights. But I I mean, the old ones used to have burnt out bulbs or, or maybe a wire breaks or something like that i mean What what do they do with recycled Christmas tree lights?
6: Well, it's essentially a disposable product. And what you do, it's a very clever uh, system that they've developed throughout, actually, Asia. They used to take a can of gasoline, pour it on the Christmas tree lights, and set them on fire, and then you'd have leftover copper. Um, But that's really bad for the environment. You don't want to do that anymore. And so (laughs) in most places, they aren't. I've seen it done. But so what's done now is they they basically shred them, and they build these small shredders with spinning blades that cut them up into tiny, tiny pieces. Then they mix them, with water and put them on shaker tables. And the tables are tilted in one direction. It's a little bit like panning for gold. And as the water flows over the heavier stuff, the copper, which is a very desirable commodity, stays in one place and the plastic and the glass flows in another. And if you do that a couple times on these mechanized tables, you get some pretty clean commodities. And more often than not, the copper at least is recycled into Christmas tree lights. And they go right back to where they came from.
3: <laughs> the endless Christmas tree light. The copper, well, what fraction of the copper that China uses actually comes from this kind of recycling? I mean, is it significant or is it one or two percent? Oh, no, no. I mean, you. it's hard
6: to get really good numbers, but it's at least half. It's an extraordinarily high percentage of the copper in China. And, you know, until quite recently when China put some restrictions on imports, more than half of that half was coming from imported sources because they didn't have enough of their own.
3: Well, well, can you give me any idea? I mean, suppose we shut that all down. I mean, not that that's possible, but suppose we just said from beginning tomorrow, no more recycling, you know, you don't need to sort your trash anymore, and we're not going to ship any of it uh, overseas, and we're not going to take it to the scrapyard and have it uh, chopped up or anything like that. Yeah, you know, What would happen? What would be the scenario in in, in, in the country uh, 10 years from now? Sure.
6: Well, I'll talk to you from both ends. One, you would have a lot more material flowing into landfills. That's where it would go. And you would have a lot more material flowing into incinerators. So that will have some kind of environmental impact. But the more profound impact, in a way, will be what it does to manufacturing in the American economy. Because the American economy is very dependent upon recycled sources of raw materials. Amazon, for example, you know, tries to make its boxes from a significant amount of recycled content. All of a sudden they're not going to be able to do that anymore. It's because it's all flowing into a landfill. So what are they going to do? They're going to be buying virgin paper and all of a sudden you're going to see forests in the southeastern United States being logged much more intensively than they are right now. Same with automobiles. You know, right now roughly half of the steel that is used in the United States, including in automobiles, comes from recycled sources. Well, if you're not able to recycle that steel anymore, you're going to be digging more taconite mines, say in northern Minnesota. I mean, northern Minnesota is a really pretty place. I've spent a lot of time up there. I'd hate to see more gaping gashes in the landscape of that area.
3: So you actually seek out junkyards uh, when you travel. How, how does your wife feel about that? Is she also from a similar background?
6: Or is- <laughs> Which, no, my wife is not from that background, and I had to take her to junkyards and show her why these are such wonderful places. And so, it's sort of grown on her. I mean, if we're on vacation, I tell her, there's a great scrapyard around here, and I bet they'd let us in to see their giant auto shredder. I still will get a skeptical look. But, you know, I've taken her to auto shredders, and she really likes them. And, and she gets the idea, this is this marvelous hidden business that affects all of us impacts all of us. It has amazing technologies and equipment that go into it, and amazing levels of knowledge that you wouldn't even think there's this kind of knowledge base out there. So it's a lot of fun.
3: I have to ask you about an auto shredder. I mean, I, I you know I've seen auto crushers. Mm. They put the car into this thing and, you know, all this, these hydraulics, whatever, and they crush it down to the thickness of a waffle or something like that. But what what is a shred? I mean, how does a shredder work? A shredder
6: is just what it sounds like. These are sometimes as much as 10,000 horsepower machines. And what they have are inside are these large hammers, usually about two to three dozen of these hammers spinning around, each weighing, I think, close to 500 pounds. And you slowly feed a car into the shredder and those hammers pulverize it so that you get basically fist-sized chunks of metal and whatever else is in there. So it goes in a car, you see a lot of steam come out, (laughs) and and what comes out is very hot chunks of steel and aluminum and copper, and and there's bits of, of course, seat and everything else in there depending on what was pulled out before it went through the shredder. And that's generally how cars are recycled and have been recycled since the 1960s, early 1970s in the United States and around the world. So then
3: you can vacuum it into a truck or a, a railroad hopper car, and away Yeah. Goes.
6: yeah. And, and steel mills love it. That shredded steel is a commodity. There's a there's a price. Every day you can go and get the market price for shredded automobile steel. And it's a coveted raw material
3: in steel mills. I'm going to look up shredded automobile futures for my- uh, yeah. you, There's
6: lots of great
3: videos on YouTube of car shredders. You'll enjoy them. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, well, well what about- my electronic stuff? What about my computers, you know, the uh, uh, consumer electronics and so forth? You know, they come out with a new model, and while there's nothing really wrong with the old model, right. uh, there's a tendency to toss
6: it out. Where, where do they go? Right. Well, that's the thing. You know, just because uh, you don't want that three year old computer anymore, you're ready to upgrade, doesn't mean that there isn't somebody somewhere who doesn't want. I mean, and so oftentimes and increasingly, there's a secondhand market for electronics in the United States. But if there isn't a market in the United States, there is a market in emerging market nations for the technology and that was one of the most enjoyable parts of doing this book was going to places like Ghana and seeing how technology that we don't think about anymore you know we upgraded out of it five years ago is still going strong I there was a gentleman by the name of Ibrahim al-hassan in Savalugu northern Ghana who I came across and he was working on 45 50 year old tube televisions for his neighbors and making a living from it that's how they would get their entertainment and, you know. Well, where does he get the tubes? Well, right. Well, the, the amazing thing about CRTs, the cathode ray tubes. Oh, is, that, yeah, those kind of tubes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The cathode ray tube televisions and monitors is they last forever, essentially. You right. know, they, they don't wear out. And so if the tube is intact, he can fix the electronics on it. And I'll never forget, he was working on a Sony Trinitron that did not have remote control. You had to actually manually change the channel. And he's an incredibly skilled man. He had found the parts to turn it into a remote-controlled television.
3: Well, finally, Adam, I mean, you know, this is kind of an upbeat story you're telling here. And if people are making good money uh, out of our discarded waste, maybe we shouldn't feel so bad about our
6: throwaway culture. Well we should feel bad in one sense, and that is that we still generate far more stuff than can you know, be purchased for reuse or recycling. It's one thing to be putting stuff into your recycling bin. There's gonna be a demand for that from manufacturers. But where things get tricky is when you're talking about, say, Ikea furniture. There's a lot of Ikea furniture out there, and it's essentially single-use furniture. If you've ever bought an Ikea shelf and put it in the back of a pickup and tried to move it, by the time you get it to where it's supposed to go, it's fallen apart. It's just not very well made. And that's the kind of stuff that's really a problem. And it sort of is the dark side of this story of recycling because there's just so much that cannot be recycled. Fast fashion, uh, which we've all heard about, you know, labels like Forever 21, which are making garments that can only be washed maybe one to five times before they just start falling apart. Not much can be done with that sort of thing from a recycling standpoint. So, you know, what I always tell people is, by all means, consume. That's the, the culture we live in. But when you buy stuff, think about stuff that maybe has a second life. That's something that maybe after you're done using it, it's durable enough where you can see passing it along to somebody else. I mean, and that's sort of one step in sort of fixing this problem of of so much stuff coming into the waste markets that simply is waste. It
3: can't be reused and recycled. Recycle and repair. Right. Adam Minter, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. We'll recycle this interview. <laughs>
2: Adam Minter is the author of Secondhand Hand Travels in the New Global Garage Sale.
3: Adam Minter can talk about real first-hand experience, at least of his relatives, of this whole recycling business. And the thing that struck me, Molly, was that it's not a 1% or 2% effect. This is a lot of recycled material. It's really important. It's half the copper in China and more than half the steel in the U.S. and whatever.
2: I was also interested in the ingenuity that Adam Minter discussed of some of these entrepreneurs. So um, if they don't have a part, they look for a part somewhere else and they salvage that and then bring it back to the television that they're fixing and they make a, a television that, that works. So it's it's entrepreneurial, but it also shows some creativity.
3: I recommend you go on YouTube and look at how all these guys in India – are taking ordinary stuff and turning it into very sophisticated stuff with basically hand tools. It's remarkable.
2: Wait, don't toss that laptop. Save yourself hundreds of dollars and the earth from yet one more hunk of toxic waste. Why don't you try fixing it instead?
7: We need to really be thinking differently about our relationship with electronics. We need to make stuff last a lot longer. And that relationship with electronics is empowered and made possible by providing people with the ability to repair and maintain on their own terms.
2: The Right to Repair movement is fighting for your right to fix your own electronics next.
7: It's
3: Waste Not on Big Picture Science. And by the way, if you have thoughts about this show or other episodes that you'd like to share, you can connect with us on social media. We're on Twitter at bypiesci.
1: With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.
3: In a moment, you'll hear about the pushback against companies that intentionally foil your attempts to repair your devices. But first, do you find old circuit boards beautiful? At a recent science conference, Molly spotted a booth where bright green and vivid blue earrings and necklaces were attracting admirers.
0: Uh, My name is Amanda Presky and I own a company called Circuit Breaker Labs. This is not usually how I see circuit breakers laid out like this. Can you describe what it is that you're doing with these circuit breakers? It's all transformed into jewelry. So I use a combination of materials, including broken electronics, circuit boards, and epoxy resin to create a finished jewelry piece. Could you
2: describe it for us, what it is that you've done here? Invoke your best descriptive powers.
0: So imagine um, like a subway map or a cityscape or just an arrangement of sort of three-dimensional boxes and lines. That's what a circuit board looks like at its very basic description. And then add on a layer of color, because the solder mask, which is the top protective layer that helps in soldering the board without creating short circuits, it comes in a wide range of colors, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, violet, black, white. Uh, There are a lot of options there. So when you combine these textures with these colors, it looks very futuristic and kind of just techy.
2: It it does, and we don't often get to see circuit boards. And when you look at them, it looks almost like you're looking down an aerial view of a a city.
0: Yes, that's the comment I get a lot and also what I see a lot when I'm trying to figure out which part of the circuit board I'm going to use to make into jewelry. Because not every part is interesting. And we should say that
2: um, Amanda's just using part of the circuit board, not the entire circuit board. So (laughs) these really are wearable. You're doing an excellent job, too, of multitasking. Because I'm asking you about your jewelry while you're selling some of your jewelry. Dave White, you're from Arizona State University. I see on your badge, I see that you are now purchasing some of this jewelry. Can you tell us what drew you to it?
5: My wife is a professor as well, and my daughter is a budding scientist. And so I think it's a really neat combination of uh, pretty jewelry that's inspired by science.
2: Isn't it interesting that computers dominate our lives, and now it's come to the point where we're also going to wear them?
5: (laughs) Yeah, I like the physical, tactile idea of seeing the circuit within the the jewelry.
2: Amanda, what made you decide
0: to turn, first of all, you're a computer scientist. Uh, Actually, I'm a chemist. I have a PhD in semiconductor nanocrystal synthesis. So how did you get into the
2: art and the science of creating jewelry from circuit boards?
0: So when I was a kid, I got into making of all varieties and I just fell in love with jewelry. It's small and it communicates your personality in a nonverbal way. And as a shy kid, that was perfect for me. Um, And when I was in college, my brother had a broken circuit board and he didn't know what to do with it. So he basically challenged me to turn it into art of some variety. And since jewelry was my favorite medium, I made jewelry.
2: Amanda, thank you so much for talking to us about your circuit board jewelry.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
3: Amanda Presky is a chemist and the owner of Circuit Breaker Labs, where she turns discarded printed circuit boards into precious wearables. You know, I wonder if she can make something for me to wear on the lecture circuit.
2: We are talking in this episode about efforts to change our disposable culture, and when it comes to big offenders, nothing beats electronic waste. The UN says that e-waste is now the fastest growing category of waste in the world. Consumers buy and toss at a furious rate, creating tens of millions of tons a year of discarded televisions, laptops, and phones. Most end up in landfills, where toxic metals leach into the environment.
3: Okay, this is just crazy. I mean, when I was growing up, just about the time that paper was patented, I mean, I didn't chuck broken electronic devices. I always tried to fix them. When my family got its first television... It came with a schematic, you know, a diagram that showed how it was wired up. And so you could go in and repair it. You could replace dead tubes. You could replace, well,
2: you could replace dead anything. Companies today are making that hard to do. Now, maybe you are like Seth and your phone, your television, even your tractor breaks and you want to fix it. And then you discover that the company won't provide the parts or the instruction you need to do it yourself. Well, don't toss that object just yet because consumer advocates are coming to your rescue. Nathan Proctor is the National Campaign Director for the U.S. Public Interest Research Group, or PERGS, right to repair campaign. And Kyle Weens is the CEO of iFixit, an internet repair community. Together, they imagine a world where we reuse, salvage, and rebuild. And they are lobbying to have a right-to-repair law passed so that companies will provide the five things that you need to repair your electronics.
7: The manuals, the schematics, the information, whatever software is needed to repair that device. Any spare parts that are available to the dealership should be available to us, as well as any kind of special tools needed for repair.
3: Okay, so again, those five things, the manuals, the schematics, like the one that came with our first television, uh, the necessary software spare parts and any special tools you really need but honestly i mean even with that can anyone really repair something like an ipad it's a very sophisticated device my toaster oven went on the fritz the other day i unscrewed the back cover and i was able to fix it but my toaster oven is far less complex than any ipad or phone so kyle isn't this just increasing complexity a natural progression of consumer products?
8: It's actually, I would say, easier to fix an iPhone than it was a TV back in the day, if you have the information and you know how to do it. Most repairs are just part swapping. You need to put in the battery, you take it apart, you put the new battery in, put it back together. It's straightforward. What is different is that schematic that used to be included. In the early 90s, the TV companies stopped including those schematics. And what we have discovered is that The kind of perception that things aren't fixable anymore is more driven by the manufacturer's intent than it is by unrepairable products. Most things out there, especially TVs, are very straightforward to fix.
3: Well, Well, let me push back on that a little bit. You say they're very easy to fix. I mean, a battery is one thing. But if you're talking about the actual circuitry, I mean, you know, the circuitry used to be, whether it was tubes or transistors or integrated circuits, they used to be in sockets. You could remove a defective one and plug in another one. But everything now is, you know,
8: one solid mass of integrated electronics. I mean, is that really easy to repair? Well, sometimes it's as simple as swapping the board. So you don't have to you know, change out an individual component. If you have a TV, most TVs that fail, it's, it's like maybe the power board inside. And swapping out that power board is a heck of a lot more efficient than going and taking that entire TV and melting it down and then making a new TV in Asia and shipping it over to you. Much simpler to swap out maybe a six-inch wide circuit board.
3: But how many people are likely to do that? I mean, you know, my next-door neighbor is never going to do that no matter how easy it is. I mean, is
8: this a substantial fraction of the user base? Well, if think about it like, like home improvement projects. You know, how many of us go into Home Depot on a regular basis? Maybe it's like one in five people are regularly doing home improvement projects, but houses are not disposable, right? If your toilet breaks, you're going to hire someone to get it fixed or fix it yourself. You have that option. And the DIY ethos and possibility it drives some of the economics that make professional repair viable as well. So we, we need both. We need professional repairers that are out there fixing these things, and we need consumers to be able to fix them.
3: Nathan, I mean, does this extend beyond electronics? We've been talking about electronics. You know, I mean, if you're, I don't know, Kyle just said your toilet. If my toilet breaks, I do indeed try and fix it. It isn't very complicated. And that's true for a lot of the stuff in my house, you know, a fan or whatever. So, I mean, this right to repair, is it really relevant to a broad swath of the kinds of things I buy?
7: It is, and it is increasingly. So if you were to have an appliance let's just say your refrigerator broke we're seeing now that companies will design these products such that you need a manufacturer code to reset the fridge so it starts running again and because all of these products now run software and there's the ability to program that software to discourage repair and that's exactly what we're seeing in everything from toasters to tractors
3: so why, why are they doing that? I mean, the, the obvious answer is, well, they just want to sell you a new product. It's just greed, if you will, bottom line. Uh, but, you know, they might argue, no, no, no. I mean, if you get into that, you know, it, you're, you're only going right. to make it worse. So what do you... Right. S-
7: if you were to ask that question to Apple, the answer that they have typically given is, we want our customers to have the best experience. And in order to facilitate that experience, we take away their options and their control and choice. So they believe, or they say, that they're trying to kind of control the user experience, but there's a huge cost to the consumer when they lose that control, when they cede that control to the manufacturer. And in the case of something like a lot of products, like a John Deere tractor, the repair business associated with maintaining those tractors is a very important revenue stream. There was an article in Crane Chicago Business that found that John Deere dealership profit margins are five times higher on the repair of equipment than it is the sale of new equipment. So there's a huge incentive to force people to have to bring their equipment to the John Deere dealership or the Apple Store or whatever the authorized repair facility is. And meanwhile, there's all these independent repair businesses which are being locked out.
3: To what extent is this just a consequence of the increasing sophistication of the products we buy. I mean, here in the Silicon Valley, there's something called Moore's Law. Every two years, your computer gets twice as fast and so forth. And on the one hand, you can say, oh, that's just planned obsolescence. They just want you to buy a new computer, and that's probably true. I mean, I don't know. But in any case, these computers themselves, if you open them up, are, you know, more and more difficult to to do anything to other than plug them in. So at that end of the market, if you're talking about those kinds of products, of course, they're going to move in the direction of being less and less amenable to repair. But there's, you know, the the bulk of all the stuff you buy isn't. So is this really a problem? I
7: would say that that attitude is exactly what the manufacturers are cultivating in the consumer mindset. But I've talked to, I mean, let me give you an example of an advocate for right to repair in Michigan. Surya, who was in high school, broke his iPhone, was too embarrassed to tell his parents. So he went online, watched a YouTube video and fixed it and realized that it really wasn't that hard. Started fixing all of his friends' phones and had a little side hustle until his mom found a uh, shoebox full of cash under his bed and thought that he had become a 'er ne'er-do-well. I had to explain to her that he had a thriving impromptu repair business. So, I mean, people can fix this stuff. I I think people need to to kind of push back on that idea that nobody can fix anything, so we should stop trying because manufacturers are making stuff so complicated. I mean, I just talked to too many people who figured it out by themselves, and it turns out it wasn't all that difficult.
3: Yeah. Well, well, Kyle, look, you know, uh, nobody's arguing that we need legislation— To make it possible to fix your bicycle, for example. I mean, you know, anybody who wants to can fix their bike and probably always will be able to. I mean, it doesn't have surface mount electronics in it or or anything like that. So what changes if the legislation you guys are talking about, and you should describe what you're talking about uh, specifically, how would that change anybody's life?
8: Sure. Yet the real change is that there are now electronics and software involved in these things. And so the modern wrench, the modern equivalent of a wrench may be a diagnostic software tool from the manufacturers. And so it's really their insistence on withholding that information that is what is driving this to the point where we need to pass a law. And it's a very focused, very small scale law. What it says is that if you're running a repair operation as a manufacturer, you need to make sure that independent repair shops and consumers have access to the same parts, tools, and information that you have. That's it.
3: So are you guys optimistic that you're going to see some legislation enacted,
8: Kyle? I think so. Uh, things, are, things are moving very well. I mean, it, it, it is always going to be challenging to go up against the manufacturers on their home turf, right? They're accustomed to stopping all kinds of legislation, and they have very high-paid lobbyists defending their turf. But we had bills introduced in over 20 different states so far this year. And we are hearing very good things from inside a number of capitals.
3: All right. Well, finally, and I guess I'll begin with Nathan on this. I kind of wonder, I'm older now than I was. I I suppose that obtains for a lot of people. But when I look at the young folks standing around at the gate at the airport or whatever, they're all looking at their phones and so forth. When I was a kid, You know, building stuff down in the basement was something that uh, most of my friends did. Everybody was interested that people were hot rodding their cars, whatever. I don't see too much of that now. And I kind of wonder whether the mindset has changed or is it still true that the maker movement, the do-it-yourself movement is alive and well? I kind of wonder, Nathan, do young people still have an interest in how things work, taking them apart and fixing them?
7: Yeah, I mean— I would recommend that you go to a local uh, fix-it clinic or community repair event. I know that in California, there's actually a number of, of these events where most of the electronics fixing is done by high schoolers who just think it's a really interesting and fun thing to do. So they fix stuff for free for their neighbors. The ability to tinker and to fix and to find out about how stuff works is a really important part about inspiring people to pursue careers in technology, engineering, and science, uh, and I do think that we need to kind of rethink the way our society treats stuff in general.
8: Kyle, absolutely. We are really, I think, on the cusp of shifting uh, things back. You know, we we have over 10 million people on iFixit every month learning how to repair things. In the last year, one in five Californians got on iFixit to learn how to fix something that they owned. Uh, you know, with your toaster oven, it's possible. There's something called a thermal fuse that is a single-time trip. Uh, device, it's possible you overheated your your toaster oven once all you got to do is get in there cut that off wire a new one on and it'll be good as new
3: it's exactly what i did it cost me 10 cents in parts and you know an, <laughs> an hour and a half of time <laughs>
8: but that but was better than three hundred dollars so if you if your uh hair dryer stops working if a curling iron stops working if it's a rice cooker or a toaster right any of these things that heat up almost always it's the thermal fuse it's that 10 cent part that goes out and it's absolutely crazy to go and buy a new one instead of just fixing the one that you
3: have. All right. Well, <laughs> Kyle Weens, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me on. And Nathan Proctor, thank you for being with us as well. Thank you.
2: Nathan Proctor is the National Campaign Director for the U.S. Public Interest Research Group, PERG's Right to Repair Campaign. And Kyle Weens is the CEO of iFixit, an internet repair community. And together, they're giving me the confidence to try repairing Devices myself.
3: Yeah, well, there's that.
2: But also, <laughs> all those guys, you know, the corner repair
3: shops, you used to find them on every corner. I mean, they need this stuff, too. So even if you're not going to fix it, maybe you want your next door neighbor to open a shop and fix things.
2: Well, the big picture in this show, then, is that we live in a toss away culture. And I wonder if a lot of that is because once stuff is out of sight, whether you're throwing fat down the drain or you're throwing away your electronics, whatever it may be. We don't have to face our waste. And because we're not encouraged to reuse or rebuild it, we're actually perfectly content with that. But with the right motivation, we can extend the life of objects and tread more softly on the earth.
3: Yeah. I think this is something new. You know, when the industrial revolution really got underway, suddenly people could get these kinds of products, better stoves for the kitchen, you know, an electric refrigerator. I mean, there were all these things. But it wasn't the expectation that you would have to replace them quickly. And that is different now.
2: It'll be interesting to see what happens with this right to repair campaign. And if indeed uh, Nathan Proctor and Kyle Weens and their associates pass these laws so that companies have to turn over what you need to be able to repair your electronics, that would be progressive.
3: And let me tell you something else in that regard because uh, when I fixed my toaster oven, I first went online. There were six. YouTube videos about how to fix that toaster oven. How's your toaster oven working now? Perfect, just perfect. I mean, that toast is indistinguishable from uh, Black Velveteen.
2: And that really is how you like it, just burn. It is. It's
3: probably not good for me, but yes.
2: Well, thank you to those who help us salvage this show and do so every week. Senior producer Gary Niederhoff, assistant producer Sarah Derwin, and operations manager Barbara Vance. I am executive producer Molly Bentley.
3: And thanks also to financial support from Rena Scholsky david and Sammy David and the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer. Seth Shostak and I do my best to fix everything but a horse race. Also, a big thanks to our listeners.
2: Okay, what else are in these bags? I don't want to be too nosy, but I am curious. Okay, that looks like some kind of plastic bodysuit. Maybe that's not what that is. It's just what it looks like. I'm not going to dig around. let's not look in that. I'm not going to look at any of these actually.
5: <laughs> once again, please support big picture science by taking our short listener questionnaire at surveymonkey.com/r/airwave or click on the link in the episode notes